whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Five Questions, the podcast where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. This is the penultimate episode of season three, with one more to come, a special episode in which I won't be the host, but instead the subject being interviewed. In each episode except for that one, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-up questions are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? Hi, I'm Liam and I'm a philosopher at the London School of Economics. I mainly work on the social epistemology of science, which is a annoyingly long thing to say, but where we look at sort of how the institutional structure of scientific research, you know, where people publish, how they're employed, that kind of thing, how that makes a difference to what kind of knowledge they're able to produce and disseminate. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast. I have questions about your work, but I'm going to hold off on them and let them come up organically later and instead just begin with my official starter question inspired by Iris Murdoch, who begins the podcast telling us that philosophy is not self-expression, but who also wrote to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So would you say your temperament influences your philosophical work, and if so, how? Yes, I, th- I think it does. So there's a sense in which it should be very hard for it not to. I mean, just because, you know, you don't stop being yourself when you sit down to write. And for me, I think one thing that's especially salient is that I often have trouble concentrating. I'm, I'm not very good at uh, keeping my mind focused on one thing for a long time. And so if, if you look at my work, the broad theme of social epistemology is usually, not even always, but usually what it's on. But the specific things I've worked on have bounced all over the philosophical map. And so it kind of is reflective of a fact about me and my attention span, basically. I can only really work by having lots of things going on at once, which are quite different from each other. So when I get bored of one, I can jump over to the other. Well, nice thing about philosophy is that it's quite tolerant of that. We're not very compartmentalized. You're allowed to kind of jump around. I mean, I I wonder, well, you talked about the way in which that affects your switching from topic to topic. I mean, do you find yourself leaping from position to position and being indecisive or fickle in your attachment to philosophical views? No, not at all. I mean, well... I'd like to think not. So maybe I, my confident no, not at all, there was just self-aggrandizement. But I tell myself that there's this kind of underlying view, which I relate to the logical empiricist movement, which I'm just kind of working out the consequences of this kind of revised logical empiricism in, in many different domains. So that's how I sort of reassure myself that I'm not someone who's just doing random things. But, you know, an, an old friend and mentor of mine from my graduate school, Danielle Wenner, she once described my method of picking research questions as, ooh, shiny. And, you know, on my worst days, I fear that there's nothing more than ooh, shiny to it. But I like to think that really there's a consistent underlying perspective being expressed across them all. 
That's interesting. I mean, does the the sort of idea that you have a central perspective in that way, is that enabling in jumping around so that you, you're sort of free to move from topic to topic because you sort of know what you're doing, which is applying a kind of logical empiricist outlook to whatever it might be? Otherwise, it would be it could be just sort of destabilizing or disorienting to be switching topics and sort of not know where you are. Yeah, I suppose it does. That seems right. I, I hadn't considered it before you say that, but when you said that, it resonated. So I, I think so. What I thought it did for me was something along the lines of, I don't know, I, I sort of just have a sort of an expectation of what a, of what a philosopher should be up to. And that's in part sort of like exploring in some depth the consequences of various commitments or a perspective or ideals one might have. And if I didn't have that shared thing, then I would worry that my lack of the fact that I'm not working on one topic all the time means I'm never going into enough depth. Whereas sort of now I can persuade myself that, well, even if I'm not going to one topic, I am sort of giving you the contours of what this kind of logical empiricist perspective might look like to issues which are pertinent today. So that's why that's the psychological role it had been doing for me, sort of reassuring me that I am doing my job as a philosopher, even even if it can seem like I'm not. But now you say that, yeah, it's also doing that sort of anchoring or grounding. I, I think that's right. It means I have a place to start wherever I go. I think the next thing I want to ask is going to take us very close to question two, which I'm not quite going to ask yet, but we may end up veering into it, which is about your attachment to logical empiricism. So it is, in a way, an unfashionable view. It's sort of associated with an early, mid-20th century philosophical movement that is sometimes regarded as passé, as sort of outmoded. Could you say something about you know, what the central convictions are that you're attached to and how you think about the history and unfashionable character of logical positivism, logical empiricism in the late 20th century? Well, for one thing, Karen, I think you were very polite there. <laughs> it's, it's, it's more than a little bit unfashionable, I would say. And yeah, I mean, I, I think the history, so answering the last bit first, I think the history of how it a- achieved this status is fascinating and not entirely to the credit of either philosophy or the broader American Academy in that I think a large large part of what makes logical empiricism attractive to me and I believe to the original participants is it gives you a way of understanding the role of inquiry and broader social life in the world that inquiry is meant to serve gives you a natural way of like understanding them together and seeing how the one can help the other and as a result of pressures under the McCarthyite system when sort of those logical positivists had to flee central europe and go to for in the main the united states they were subject to a lot of pressure from the McCarthyite system and they weren't really able to transmit the total package of their views. So what you ended up with was logical empiricism seeming like, you know, a series of disconnected intellectual puzzles about, you know, how exactly to model explanation in the sciences or something. And there's just much less reason to care about those disconnected intellectual projects. It, it made sense as a kind of as a unified, coherent perspective, but it didn't really make sense as a, a one-off thing. So I think in America, it sort of the reasons for it being attractive was was killed by the FBI, more or less. And the, the the books, if you want people want to read about that, is there's a book called Time in the Ditch, and there's another book called To the Icy Slopes of Logic, and they both tell this story. They're very interesting. I recommend them. And in the UK, I'm a bit less confident than this, but there was, of course, some logical empiricist presence in the UK. And there, my sense of the history is, and this is partly from work that's been done on some of the there's these four women, um, Philippa Foote, Murdoch, Anscombe, and Mary Midgley, who sort of came to prominence during World War II as 
as ethicists in the UK. And then they, once the men came back from the war, they sort of struggled to keep up the recognition and maintain their place. And my sense is that logical empiricism often played the role in the UK for sort of like feckless young men at Oxbridge who were just like the children of the ruling class to sort of dismissively sneer at things and say, oh, that's that's metaphysics. Yeah. And, you know, the British upper class are useless and ruin everything they touch and that goes for logical empiricism too. And so for sort of different reasons, logical empiricism really lost its core attractiveness in the America and the UK, but not, I think, for reasons which are sort of intellectually fully respectable. And so I often think that its positions were were defensible and can be better understood once you have a proper, more holistic understanding of what it should be doing. And in my work, I'm trying to sort of bring out that more holistic perspective. Wow, that's really fascinating to think about the intellectual history of logical positivism in that wider political or two different wider political social contexts. I suppose now, having been polite about the unfashionableness of logical empiricism, my second question will not seem snarky. So I'm going to ask this. Do you really believe your philosophical views? Yeah. So one of the papers I've wrote in the Social Epistemology of Science is about co-authorship. And what we're interested in that paper, it's it's itself co-authored with uh, Haisin Dang and Ramko Haisin. And what we're interested in that paper is what kind of pattern of agreement and disagreement is required to sort of legitimately author a paper together? And we, we, we come to the conclusion, it's sort of on the central propositions. For each of the central propositions the paper is trying to put forward, a majority have to believe it. Which means, of course, that I could be in the minority on some of the claims and thus permissibly publish a paper where I'm an author because I did some work, you know, I, I gathered the data or whatnot, but I don't actually believe the claims being made in light of that data, I just still deserve some credit for the work I did do in putting together whatever was necessary to publish the paper. So by my own lights, if I believe what I have said, then I don't have to believe what I've said. Nonetheless, as it turns out, I just in fact do tend to believe the things I say. And I think the reason for that is, as I said, I think a lot of what's valuable in having a class of professional philosophers is sort of giving people the time to think through and really express and explore a given perspective on the world. And it just so happens that my actual perspective is relatively rare enough that there's some independent interest in me actually exploring that one. I think that you know, if, if it turned out my belief was totally shared by everybody, then it might be like I would add very little sort of my marginal contribution to being like the next person to defend Rawlsian liberalism might not actually be that big. And so I'm better off exploring something, even if I don't think it's true. But I just so happen, I think, not to actually face that dilemma. And so I tend to believe the things I say, and that seems to be compatible with me for fulfilling the mission of a philosopher. Well, I love the reflexivity of applying your work in social epistemology to the social epistemology of philosophy and to your, your own work. I wonder, I mean, you, you've also written about lies in science, and I don't know if you're thinking of the lies you write about when you write about the philosophy of science as more deliberate than the kinds of exploring of claims you don't believe in the context of inquiry that you just talked about. Do you have a view about lies in philosophy and the kind of role that they play? Yes, there's a couple of things. So the the kinds of times when we think it could be okay to disbelieve a claim you've put forward in a paper are more or less occasions when there is a plausible argument to be made that 
whatever inquiry you've done supports a conclusion. And you yourself don't actually buy that plausible argument, but you don't see the means of it being immediately refuted, or you think it's at least a perspective that should be out there and worth being considered. And so for that reason, you sort of like make the strongest case for it and sort of don't bother including merely biographical hedges. You know, The fact that I happen not to believe it isn't really very interesting to whether or not this data in fact supports that conclusion. So those tend to be the cases where I think you know it's okay to not believe what you say there because... The, the broader good of inquiry permits that. The cases where I tend to think of fraudulent are cases where you obfuscate in some way the connection between the inquiry you've actually done and what it could support. And so, you know, if you generate data you did not in fact find in order to better support something or obscure data that you did in fact find in order to avoid refuting something, then in those cases, you're actually, you're not sort of, saying, well, look, there's a case you made here from the inquiry I've done. You are misleading people as to what inquiry you've actually done. And that's where I don't tend to think it's good. Now, it's totally possible, I think, to do this in philosophy. In fact, the funny story of my paper on fraud is it is the ancestor of a paper I wrote in as a kind of joke. There used to be this kind of philosophy joke website called Fake Noose. Yeah. And that website had this thing which um, Kripke forced to resign amidst allegations he faked the results of thought experiments. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, which I thought was really funny. And I then, like, just I was a grad student at the time and I was sort of learning how to do formal modeling stuff. And I came up with this joke little model of like, well, okay, here are the situations under which I would predict that at least fancy famous philosophers would have some reason to fake the results of thought experiments. And my advisor, Kevin Zolman, just like, begged me not to publish something accusing all of the famous people in my field of probably being liars. And so I was like, okay, and I went away and worked on a more serious version about fraud in science. But I was initially thinking about fraud in philosophy as it happens. And I think it's perfectly possible that people could withhold considerations they know to be pertinent and just simply fail to give them, or in fact misrepresent the contents of their own intuition in order to say that something's intuitive and try and hope that the social force of them saying it compels other people to share the intuition. I don't know how successful these would be, but you know, I, I, I think it's perfectly possible that such things could occur in philosophy, and I guess where it's possible it's probably going to be actual given enough time and enough philosophers. So if there hasn't been fraud yet, there soon will be is what I think. I think you're probably right about that, I, but we will we will name no names, and I'll turn instead from fraud to fiction or art for question three. Is there a work of art that you love in part for its philosophical depth? Oh, absolutely. So I'm, I'm going to cheat here and get two things in, because I'm just going to mention there's this wonderful website, Aesthetics for Birds, where they get philosophers to write on a piece of art which is important to them. And I have contributed something to that on Blind Willie Johnson's Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground, which is a haunting, wonderful piece of music. So I'm not going to say anything more on that. I'm just going to recommend people check that out. But for this answer, what I'll say instead is there's a Japanese film my partner usually introduced me to called, the English title is Millennium Actress. And at a high level, it's a fictional biography of a Japanese actress who her filmography sort of spans a thousand years of Japanese history from the medieval era into the near future. So it's it's not really a, about the fictional biography per se. What what the film gives you is like how this woman in the sort of the twilight of her life like looks back and, and sees her own story as intertwined with the the story she's told through film. And it's just ends up being this kind of like 
wonderful reflection on like how she made her own life meaningful and what what it is to like give yourself meaning like so it can be a cliche if asked what's the meaning of life you say something like the meaning is whatever you know whatever you give it whatever tasks you take on is important and work towards but this film for me really kind of shows like that can be a non-trivial and viable answer to that deep question because it's it's beautiful it's 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 it really portrays, I think, someone who lived a meaningful life in exactly that kind of existential chosen sense. And so, yes, that's the film I'd recommend. So I want to make sure I'm understanding the, the plot properly. So she has lived a thousand years making films over that time, or she just made films about a thousand yeah, years? Yeah, it's of like her film career covers a thousand years. I see. She, she's, lived, she's in her 70s. She's sort of, so, you, so she lived through World War II and the sort of post-World War II economic boom in Japan. That was her life. And do you have a sense of why the sort of vast span of history is important? Like what that has to do with the making of meaning? Is it incidental to her finding meaning that she has that historical range? I think it's doing a few things. One actually is the film is a bit of an homage to Japanese cinema in general. And so it wants to sort of go through different genres that have been popular at different times in Japanese history and, you know, sort of medieval samurai epics were popular at one point and then there's also been sci-fi has been popular at another point and so this is a narrative device which allows you to cover all of that but more than that i think the deeper thing is the the cosmological view the film is embedded within this sort of the background culture of of japan involves some sort of broad awareness of buddhist ideas of rebirth and cyclical renewal and that's one of the themes in the film too where in many ways what she's done is found different ways of playing out a story which is meaningful to her under different guises so it sort of captures the idea of you know, a cyclical rebirth and the, the the films going through history makes gives us sort of the appearance of this happening down the centuries but rather than sort of seeing that as torturous like this is you know imagining sisyphus happy she's she's found a way to like live in this cycle but it be important and meaningful and like not bad not bad to be trapped in that way so that's what i think the role of history in the film okay i will try to look up this movie and, and watch it it sounds like it's also about the connection between the meaning and value of art and the meaning of life and it has it, its own reflexivity it sounds really really amazing very much so yes i'm gonna use the the theme of history to pivot to question four which is back to philosophy what do you hope for from philosophy in the next 20 years? Oh, promotion of pay rise, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I have one of the things I did, which caused a bit of a stir, uh, you know, tiny relative to anything I do, um, is I, I maintain a blog and I wrote this piece called The End of Analytic Philosophy, wherein I argued that something like the analytic philosophy is institutionally dominant in, in the in the Anglosphere where I'm where I work and where I'm familiar with things. But despite its institutional dominance, it's sort of as a research program, it's degenerating in a sense from Lakatosh. It's sort of failing to generate and resolve puzzles which should be of interest given sort of core commitments of many people therein. And so people have taken me to think something like, I think analytical philosophy is going to die and be replaced by something else. But I actually don't think that because I think it's so institutionally dominant that we're all just going to shuffle along and keep spinning our wheels and, and never actually achieve anything. And I don't see that changing in the next 20 years. So what I kind of really imagine is institutionally in the academy, we'll keep doing what we're doing, 
And future historians of philosophy are going to remember this era for somebody who we know we don't now know to be paying attention to, but is doing something outside of the academy, or at least outside of professional philosophy, which people will view to be the next interesting thing. So I kind of think, you know, what the next 20 years will be us wasting our lives. But, you know, it's pleasant work, indoor job, no heavy lifting. So wasting our lives in a, in a nice way. And then someone else will do something which we can't predict. I see. So what you hope for is someone outside of academic professional philosophy to be the philosopher of the future. I mean, do you think that will at least play the role of teaching or informing that kind of person so that it will be someone who knows about philosophy as practiced in academia? Or are you imagining a, a kind of a more radical outsider? No, no, I'm imagining something like but what I'm what I'm trying to think of is a historical analogies. And the best historical analogies I could think of were the end of scholastic well, this is the thing. What's perceived of as the end of scholastic philosophy in sort of the birth of the early modern era. And then also the thought currents which led to the birth of Neo-Confucianism in, in China. And I think in both these cases, what you had was a kind of a school of thought arising or being renewed in, in, in respective cases, where actually people sort of positioned themselves as kind of, in some way, sort of renewing the, the tradition, like either through the Renaissance, like really getting back to the classics and the true spirit of philosophy against dead scholasticism, or in the Chinese case, really sort of really actually better appreciating what the greats had taught us in the past and how it could be integrated in the worldview. But all of these people were actually deeply conversant with the traditions they were ostensibly rejecting. So the new Confucians claimed to be defending Confucianism from Buddhism and Taoism, but in fact were very, very familiar with the works of Buddhist and Taoist philosophers. And it was only by really sort of integrating their insights that they were able to generate this new and vibrant philosophy. And much like, you know, anyone, any serious scholar of Descartes who's, you know, the persons of introducing modernity and, and, and whatnot. Like he's obviously like really familiar with scholastic philosophy and scholastic philosophy doesn't go anywhere for centuries. You know, it's, it's still still going and figures like Locke or Descartes are still familiar with it. And so, yeah, I imagine we'll play something like that role. We'll, we'll be the sort of the the Buddhist scholars who, who the future Neo-Confucians will claim to be totally rejecting, but will actually be building from our work. So, you know, if, if people want to give that optimism, like, we can we'll be the the bad guys of history, and someone has to be the bad guys of history. So that's good. Well, having cast us in that role, I'm not sure that where there is to go for question five, but I'm going to ask it anyway. This is another Murdoch inspired question, beginning with a quote. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher. She wrote, "What is he afraid of?" So, what are you afraid of? You know, I had some sense of what the questions were going to be before. Oh, no, I didn't really know. But this is the one which actually did stick in my mind. And and it stuck in my mind because I was worried that I have nothing interesting to say here. I thought, what am I afraid of? Pain. You know, I don't like stubbing my toe. But then I realized that actually that is kind of revealing. And I think it comes across in the philosophical perspective I mentioned earlier. I think of myself as kind of a a mundane humdrum kind of person and the sort of logical empiricism i like to say i'm looking at over different spheres I, I hope it's a very sort of down-to-earth perspective quite uh in many ways sort of grounded in the everyday and likewise the thing i just said about you know why I don't despair at this idea of a role for you know the kind of philosophy doing as the sort of the bad guy footnote of history is because, you know, I, I have some sense of like, well, you know, it's the bad guy footnote of history, but I work nice hours, decent pay, you know, in a, in a more mundane sense, it's a perfectly nice life. And I think that's me. I'm afraid of, I don't like stubbing my toe. I, you know, I, I wouldn't like to uh, to lose my wallet. 
the the banal concerns of the suburban petty bourgeois and i think that does that says something informative about me and my philosophy so maybe not something good but informative you really have learned something about me well it's nice to be able to end on a note of comfort and i'll say thank you liam for appearing on the podcast my pleasure thank you so much for having me it's an honor Liam Kofi Bright is an assistant professor of philosophy at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He's the author of Group Lies and Reflections on the Purpose of Social Epistemology, Why Do Scientists Lie, and other essays in epistemology and the philosophy of science. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. Five Questions.